Hello, everyone. Welcome. And I'm so glad to see so many of you here. And I'm going to just go ahead and get started. Um, I'm one of the co-authors of Bridges Out of Poverty. And also another book I am co-author with Ruby and some others, which is called Bridges to Health and Healthcare, which is used by the health sector. So I am very happy to be here. Been doing this about 20 years. So if you are, as we are rolling through, if you have any questions. Um, so I live in Greenville, South Carolina. So greetings from Greenville, South Carolina, where everyone, uh, frankly, is from Michigan or somewhere up north, including me. I'm originally from Ohio. Um, we began our bridges work in Ohio. Phil Duvall and I, who many of you may know or have heard of, who uh, is also co-author of Bridges and as well as the Getting Ahead in a Just Getting By World series, which is actually uh, the, um, the group curriculum for folks in poverty who want to transition out of poverty, very similar to Bridges, uses the Bridges lens. We were working together and someone gave us a book and it, the name of the book was Framework for Understanding Poverty, written by Ruby Payne. And we applied her work from schools, which was originally the intent of that, of that work, uh, to organizations and communities. Um, we have been at this quite a while, but we wouldn't still be at it if it wasn't for the people who we call uh, the community of practice, those uh, champions who use our work and do such innovative things with it. And then we get to share that with others. It's an amazing thing that has taken place with Bridges. It's actually become a movement. And we had no idea that this would happen. So um, that's the history. This is an introduction to Bridges. So I don't know where you are in terms of your knowledge of Bridges. But I am assuming since you signed up for the introduction to Bridges that that's, uh, that's what you need to hear. Or you're thinking about presenting it perhaps if you're a certified trainer and want to know how we present an overview of Bridges. So here we go, we're gonna begin. So I'm gonna to move to the next slide. And again, if you have any questions, just let me know. Here's the Bridges Out of Poverty book. We'll also be talking about getting ahead and just getting by world, but uh, Bridges Out of Poverty is generally uh, a lens. It's considered a lens. It's how you look at what you do every day in a different way. And it helps you to look at economic class and be able to see that systemically, to see the environments of economic class and how that has an impact on us. It has an impact on our lens and how we sort of form our lives and the decisions we make in our lives, as well as many other environments and populations that we belong to, our culture, our gender, our religion. I mean, we are just so... Uh, full of different um, thoughts and ideas and perspectives because we have different experiences and different environments. What's cool about Bridges is it just breaks out the economic class environment, helps us to analyze that. And the goal of using this lens, first of all, is to identify your own lens. So to look and say, you know, here I was, uh, for, for me, for example, I grew up in the Steel Belt, which is now called the Rust Belt, and my dad was an immigrant who worked in a factory. And my mom used to say uh, to us, we may not be rich, but we're real and genuine people. And so in that working class environment, which, by the way, is pretty much gone, uh, the people like my father, who were working class, are now probably working poor because of, of the change in the economic uh, structures in this country. Uh, with a sixth grade education, it's difficult to get a job that is a sustainable wage 
and will help you to own your own home and, and not be afraid for today and not be afraid for tomorrow as well. So she'd say, you know, we may not be rich, but we're really genuine people. And I was presenting that and I asked my audience, well, what did you hear growing up? What did you hear that you think might be an economic class message from your caregivers, from your parents, grandparents, or whoever brought you up? And one woman came up to me and she said, you know, I grew up dirt poor. And she said, I grew up dirt poor. And here's what my mom said, we may be poor, but we're good looking. And so what I thought to myself was, my word, we were not that good looking in my family. So we settled for real and genuine. But you can see how what you what you experience when you are uh, younger and growing up. And some of us have been in situational poverty. Some of us have been in generational poverty. Some of us grew up solidly middle class and have gone all over the place. These experiences uh, sort of form a lens. Our communities also have these lenses. So our communities have sort of views of individuals in poverty. Many people in America believe that if you're in poverty, you're not working. And we know that's not true. Uh, that is a misconception. And it is um, a sort of paradigm of our communities toward folks in poverty that is so inaccurate. Those are the type of things that we address in Bridges, as well as many, many other things. Um, what we know is that between the federal poverty line, where you can get uh, benefits and uh, subsidized housing and maybe some transportation vouchers and Medicaid, and 200% above that, uh, which is considered a sustainable wage, um, that's a lot of folks who are working poor. And in many ways, uh, maybe as part of my experience, but I really think that the working, those that are working and in poverty, we're working three jobs. and are really just trying to make ends meet and they're struggling. So we are um, very respectful of everyone's experience, but in my lens, that is amazing because you may not have healthcare, you may not have any sort of subsidies and you're still working hard. So those that um, are trying to reach that point as well as in that point and everyone in between from from poverty to wealth can be impacted by bridges. The first thing we all need to do is to look at the, our own lens and our own experience. How we apply bridges is very systemic and we have a very broad application of it. Um, there are all sectors use bridges. There is not one sector that I can think of, including the private sector businesses that do not uh, use bridges. We have champions in every uh, sector. We have champions in courts, we have champions in healthcare, schools, higher ed, and some of these works have been published at AHA Process by the very people who are the champion practitioners. They are fascinating to look at and to see how people have applied them. Our three main areas where we apply bridges are the one-on-one -on -one individual level. How do we make sure we're building relationships of mutual respect? Do we need a lens to do that? Well, here's what I always say. You don't need a lens to interact with somebody who is exactly like you. If the same age, the same race, the same culture, the same sort of town or city experiences, urban, rural, probably you can identify and connect with that person very quickly. And isn't that a good feeling when you connect with someone like that? That instant connection, as Anna Green Gables would call it, she'd say we are kindred spirits. But what we work with today and it very gratefully work with today are, are very diverse groups of people. 
And in order to work with somebody who's very different than you, you have to understand and have a lens of what that person's experience might have been and what the environments that that person uh, has lived through or lives in have had an impact on their own lives and their own thinking. Um, Peter Sange said, true diversity is diversity of thought. And I think of that in terms of economic class, culture, gender, ethnicity, orientation, and every aspect. We have different experiences and different thoughts. How do we relate to one-on-one on that one-on-one to build those relationships of mutual respect? Our, uh, one of our key points and bridges is that our agencies or organization, courts, schools, business, academics, are typically designed from a middle-class perspective. But not everyone who comes through our doors that we interact with, even the people we work with side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder every day, have had different experiences. And so if we can just hone in on the economic experiences and environments for a moment. Uh, what we find is that even within uh, the same language, I'm just going to talk about language for a minute. If we're both uh, speaking English in the middle class environment, there is one way of speaking and communicating that is respected. And then maybe in poverty, there's a different way and different things that are respected. So when we design everything for customer service from the middle class perspective, and we're not thinking about different environments and populations that may come from different experiences, we're going to miss the mark. And what we do many times is to break relationship without even knowing it, thinking that we're being kind and courteous, but maybe we aren't being as kind and courteous to what's important to that person and what are the priorities. So sometimes we come from environments that are very casual in communication. So, for example, you may, if you look at a healthcare situation, so you have a physician or a nurse practitioner who is using all what we would call the medical ease or the formal language register. So, you're using medical ease. Well, if you're using that with somebody who is middle class, the middle class person may not know all that all those medical terms either, right? But probably in the middle class that person will stop or say, and I can remember once my uh, husband, the physician told us he was neutropenic and I had no clue, neither did he, what that meant. You know, what does that mean? Why don't we break it down into plain English? Well, we all do this in all our different sectors. We just talk and, you know, I'm probably doing it right now. I'm saying things that are social work ease and education ease and bridge disease. And so we talk and we're talking to different groups and sometimes we're short on time. And so we just say those, you know, larger words in the big terms. Well, I said to the physician this one thing, um, and it's not a, it's not really correct English, but I just said this, neutropenic, which, and then the, the physician, uh, the oncologist explained what that meant, which is at risk of infection. If you're in poverty, are you going to ask the question like that? Is the question in my mind? Because in the middle class, in schools, in work, in academic if you can, in academics, you ask a good question, you can get a better grade. If you can ask your professor a question that's a great question that they've never thought of, that's respected. In poverty, when I ask a question, I may be thinking, I'm looking stupid. I might not have that experience of questions being that so powerful uh, piece that helps us to connect. I also may use a different kind of story structure. I may communicate information in a more circular way. So I might not have stories that begin at the middle, beginning and middle and end. So if you are working with people one-on-one who are from this environment, and it could be many different environments where we have a more casual way of 
communicating. Uh, economic class is maybe just one of those areas. But I remember once, then it, then you have to be able to say, okay, this is going to take 10 minutes. In the middle class, it's not supposed to take 10 minutes when you're interacting with somebody in that professional environment. It's supposed to take two minutes, not longer than two minutes to say what the point is, and, and then we can get going and get down to business. One of the reasons it takes longer is because folks may be telling stories in circular story structure. I remember one time a guy threw the window back and our, in our front office at our addictions, um, outpatient addictions agency. And he said, Miss, last week my uncle got thrown in jail. You know, he got thrown in jail last week. And you know why? Because he steals cars. He stole 16 cars in his life. And, you know, everything, every time he gets a car, a steal a car, you know, he's really bad because he can, he always gets caught. So he steals cars, he gets caught, and he's married to my Aunt June. And he goes on and on the story. And 10 minutes later, I asked him a question. I said, what are we talking about? And he said, well, I don't have my social security card. Because his Aunt June was married to the guy who got incarcerated. She couldn't give him transportation to the social security office last week. If you look at your watch or your phone during that 10 minutes, you are going to break relationship. And if you break relationship, chances are that that guy is probably not going to get, uh, we're not going to get that outcome. or It's not going to be as easy for that guy to get that outcome of getting sober and stabilizing his life. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about that one-on-one -on -one individual relationship. And I just got one little point that we had this aha in the, in the health sector about a month ago. And here's what we thought. When I come into the doctor and I can see the doctor and the nurse's credentials, I see the little badge. In the middle class, I'm thinking trust. I some some level of trust that this person might know what they're talking about. When I come from poverty, I don't think that means as much. I think it's even more important to build those relationships, to listen, okay? To be able to interact with that story and get all the information you need while that circular story is going on so you know what's happening. Sometimes people will even interrupt you and be participatory with you, thinking that's how you listen to someone. In some environments, when you're listening to someone that you have a relationship with, you interact at the same time. You kind of talk at once. Everybody talks at once. Do you have a family like that? That's relationship. It just doesn't work in the middle class environment. So if we look at those skills, your frontline staff could really enhance their skills to be able to build those relationships, understand the circular story structure, understand that someone in poverty may not trust the organization. And so you have to have that time for relationships. But if we look at the institutional application, if I, if I as the administrator or the manager do not give my frontline staff the time to build those relationships in mutual respect, it's not going to happen. So not only the frontline staff needs to change, but policies and procedures and, and how the organization is, is um, designing services for certain diverse populations is going to be very important. Finally, on the community piece, how do we apply bridges in the community piece? Well, the bridges helps people transition out of poverty. So if the community has an ending poverty initiative, some communities have been attracted to bridges to do that. And what is unique, I think, about the bridges steering committees that oversee how do we reduce barriers to people moving out of poverty in our community um, 
one of the things that we look at is who's sitting at that decision-making table. And so we want people of all economic classes, as well as representing all races, genders, orientations, et cetera, in our community. It's difficult to get people in poverty to that level community at table. And one of the ways that we are able to do that is through Phil DeVos getting ahead in the just getting by world with, with folks who are um, going through getting ahead and preparing and, and maybe have an interest to come to that decision-making table. So um, policy is the final piece that we want to impact. And we actually have had success at having an impact on policy in Ohio at, at the state level. So there's some information at ahaprocess.com about that. It's called the Healthier Buckeyes Initiative. And um, secondly, if you're interested in getting ahead, uh, we've had an independent study that is showing getting ahead and having very promising results. You can also find that. Uh, at ahaprocess.com. So those things are, are really cool stuff that's happened in the last uh, several years. So let's look at our mental model for poverty. So what we have here is a model or sort of a pie chart, even though it doesn't have the slices of the pie in it, that has actually been designed by folks in poverty. So when you come to a getting ahead group, and you're learning about the hidden rules, which we're going to talk about today, and you're learning about the different ways we communicate in different economic classes and how we each have resources and strengths and bridges helps people to identify their own strengths as well as the strengths of others. You're looking and the first thing that you're asked to do as you look around the room at one another is, is to draw a circle and say, what is life like in poverty in our community? What is the true experience of folks in poverty in our community? So that is an important piece because a lot of times people have these different conceptions of what poverty is. Who knows better what poverty might be than folks in poverty? So people that go through getting ahead draw the circle and say, here's what people do in poverty. This is not what people think. This is not what motivates or doesn't motivate someone. All of our economic classes, um, pies, I call them, but they're pie charts, are the same way. They're all about what do we do? What do we experience? How are we interacting with each other within a certain environment of economic class? So this model, which has been recently um, transformed so that it actually has pictures in it, this model uh, is a result of, of at least a hundred uh, different uh, getting ahead groups who have said, this is what life in our, is like in our community. This is what people do. So if you look at this, transportation, uh, working, having jobs, interacting with family and friends, legal issues, do folks in poverty end up having legal issues? A lot of those legal issues are traffic uh, violations, uh, fines that couldn't be paid from traffic violations. Uh, so it's not necessarily uh, that, you know, there's a big criminal aspect here. It's this that you don't have the resources or the communication to handle even a speeding ticket or, you know, going through a yellow light that turns red and the camera takes your picture and it's a $500 fine in Sacramento. Those kind of things can be life-changing when you're in poverty because if you look around at the different things we do when we're in poverty, it's a, it, they're all tentative. The resources are tentative. So it's like being on a tightrope. When one resource, let's say, explodes or you have something happen, that has a great impact 
a cascade of different explosions because when we're in poverty, usually our resources are not as stable, not as strong. Well, um, a, a guy wasn't getting ahead. And uh, so he was saying that relationships were all about and transportation were just so connected, uh, so connected. Um, the um, He said, I never go anywhere. Uh, in transportation without a relationship. I'm either calling somebody to get a ride or somebody's calling me to get a ride. And so he looked at me and he said, you know, you've got AAA written all over you. Uh, you And you, you know, you would depend on AAA rather than, you know, somebody to come out with a truck and a chain haul your sorry car back to your sorry place. Uh, these quotes are priceless. So we are um, looking at this in terms of, you know, he said, you don't understand when you walk into your agency and you see somebody there who you know that's come for an appointment and there's six other people there that's that's like the, we were the first uber in a rural area whoever has a car that's running may need to go to town may not have the gas money so they call up different people and say hey can i pick you up I'll throw in see if you can throw in some money for gas we can go to town we can go do our shopping we can go do our agency time, which is the time we spend going from agency to agency to agency to help us survive poverty, um, but not necessarily get us out of poverty. So he said, you know, it's like we're, we were the first Uber. He said, he said, I wish I'd have thought of that. He said, but I did think of it. We were like the first Uber, but we knew each other. He said, that's a, that's a program designed for and by people in poverty. If you look around, at the mental model of poverty, you see health. Health is a big issue in poverty because of the stress of poverty. And the truth is, the wealthier you are, the healthier you are. And we think it's because of a lack of access to healthcare, but really what it, it boils down to is population health research shows us that we're in the stressful life of juggling resources and not having enough, or in other environments where um, we may be not part of the dominant race or the dominant culture. It creates an, another layer of stress. If you're working on low hierarchy jobs where you don't have much voice and your opinion doesn't matter and people just tell you what to do, it really has an effect on that stress has an effect on your blood pressure. It goes up, it won't come down. So it's not unusual to see people who are in poverty uh, who have in the whole entire population of folks in poverty actually have a higher risk of ill health. Um, I just wanted to mention quickly, I talked to you about, uh, before I do this though, let's look at the entertainment because a lot of times we don't think that people in poverty can afford the flat street screen TV. I had a pediatrician ask me once, what in the world is a woman doing with a Mercedes if she's on Medicaid? He said, I call that a Medicaid Mercedes. I think that uh, the middle class environments of health and academics and business sort of don't understand uh, this is a different world. In middle class, you do not pay, you do not have fun until you pay the bills. Well, in poverty, the bills are never paid. So, and we live in a society constantly marketing to us to purchase things, to have things, to buy things. I think that uh, people will engage in entertainment to relieve that stress. I think that people want their kids and themselves to look like everybody else in America and have every everything else in America or Canada or wherever you're from. And I think that 
the middle class gets triggered by these things and it ends up breaking relationships, sometimes through that eye, raised eyebrow or just the way we're holding ourselves. I said to the physician when he said, hey, that's a, that's a Medicaid uh, Mercedes, I asked him um, if you could lift that mental model for a second and just look at your patient, the, her son. And he said, but it makes me mad because she's still a no-show and she has transportation. And I said, you know, this pie is about more than one thing, transportation. You know, and when I'm in poverty, do you think that health is driving the car? Do you think that? And I said, health is always in the backseat because there's other things you have to do just for today to survive. So if you had this in front of you, what I would ask you to write is that this is the tyranny of the moment. This environment keeps you in the now. You are worried for today. You're worried about where you're going to stay. You're worried about where you're going to eat what you're going to eat. You're worried about how you're going to get where you need to go. You're going to worry about if I lose my job and or my car doesn't start, then I'm going to lose my housing. If I lose my housing, if I, you know, what's going to happen? We're going to be homeless. There, You make decisions. Do I have somebody come live with me? Do, do I live with somebody else? Are we doubling up? Am I going to invite that man who has that card to come stay with me when I have a 17-year-old boy he's going to fight with? So in this environment, we are um, having to make different choices about our relationships. People who are not in this environment look at the choices we make when we're in poverty and have a lot of questions about that, including why would we spend money? Why would we be in this relationship? Why would we do this? Why would we do that? Because in this environment, it's a very different perspective. It's a very different way of experience. And so we tend to use the hidden rules of our environment that we're in. Um, the, the final thing about, I think I've said probably everything I can say about this, this overview, uh, just the tyranny of the moment, worried for today, the nowness of poverty, and uh, people struggling within that who are fine and decent people who are trying to get a foothold. And uh, many times the decisions we make uh, are being, you know, having, the environment have, has a lot of impact on that as well. So I'm just, you know, this is just the way it is. We're not making excuses for folks and we're not, you know, calling folks victims. We're just saying, look at that. And is that an accurate picture of poverty in your community? You need to have an actual, actual picture of what that's actually like. So when you're designing services, you, you're on the mark and not missing the mark. The middle class typically is not worried for today. They are worried for tomorrow. And so when we're here, we usually know that we're going to eat today and probably going to be able to eat something nutritious. We're going to have um, transportation that's stable. We're typically looking at housing uh, as home ownership in this world. Uh, we are looking at our achievements and thinking that that is quality of life. There are many things here that are quality of life. Usually people here would not tell you that money were quality, was quality of life, but it gives you the choices and the options that you need to have that quality of life. And you want a better life for yourself and a better life for your kids. I think people in poverty want that same thing too, but the resources of stability aren't there. Here, there's more stable resources. So what I would ask you to write here along the sides is that um, this is worried for tomorrow. This driving force is to achieve to get that stability 
for this generation as well as the next generation to manage your money and to um, have the quality of life. I sometimes wonder um, in poverty uh, what, um, you know, when we talk about what is quality of life, it tends to be very, very relationship centered. It doesn't tend to be, you know, I have stability uh, because it's not part of our experience when we're in, in poverty. So this is a very different economic class environment. And just one more point, if you would write this in the margin, is that um, this, this piece is sort of the standard for all systems uh, in Western civilization. And that can really trip us up because many times, for example, in health, 20, they say 20% of the patients are using 80% of the resources. So if you do not have a lens to do things a bit differently with the 20%, many of whom are in poverty um, and have lower resources, then you are going to continue to not get the outcomes and maybe your organization might not even be able to survive if you don't have another lens. If you look at wealth, just to complete this continuum, uh, wealth is about financial assets and connections. If you think about it, connections are relationships. So two out of the three pies or models have relationship, you know, as the driving force. It's only the middle class that is working to achieve and, you know, having to be intentional about relationships. These connections are very high powered relationships, as I say. It is, a, it is part of life that you will connect with others who are within your uh, base. This is generational wealth we're talking about here, not, not new money. So in this environment, um, often there is a sense that you have been lucky, that you have been privileged. So people have fundraisers and will give back. It's called noblesse oblige, which is French, French for, can you say it, noble obligation. Um, in order to um, help those that were not so uh, privileged or so lucky to uh, have abundant resources. So that's something else we can write on the three pies that I like. Here, you're not worried really for today or tomorrow, but your concern is the past because that's where the decorum, that's where the family history, that's sort of where you're, the structure, the framework of your life and your children's life and your great-grandchildren's life will be. Um, investments here tend to go out 100 years into the future. I've heard people say, if you don't tie up the money legally by the third generation, the assets will have, the principal will be depleted by your your great your your children, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren. So you have a lot of, of power here. You have a lot of attorneys. You can have the best advice uh, in terms of attorneys and, and in terms of um, uh, financial advisors. This is uh, a very powerful world. So these connections uh, help to bring about all of the future story. And I think that the biggest, the biggest connection I make to this here, have, not having lived in this environment, but uh, it's a sense that you are the past. Here I am the past for future generations. So if you think about it, in poverty, there's a nowness. In middle class, it's more about the future. So poverty is more about the present. And here... Uh, it's really a focus on the past and bringing that past into the present and into the future. A very, very powerful place to be. We seek to respect everyone in all of these economic classes. 
in these environments. And so, so let's look at what's next. These are the hidden rules of economic class. And one time I was presenting and a guy said to me, who made up these rules and why are you hiding them from people? And I thought that was so cute. But I thought the environments make up the rules. So you can be in poverty and you know everybody around you uses certain hidden rules to survive poverty. But you might not use those hidden rules. You might know the hidden rules of middle class and you might use some of those hidden rules to help you get ahead. Typically in poverty, we need hidden rules to help us get by. In middle class, we need hidden rules to help us to get ahead. In wealth, we need to build our assets for future generations and to make those connections that are important. So there's different hidden rules, but no matter where you are or what environment, if somebody talks to you about the other hidden rules and you decide you want to use them, you can use them in any environment that you want to. So if you look down at driving forces, you can see what was written on the pies. And poverty, the driving force, kind of impacts every, all of our lives is survival, relationships, and entertainment. In the middle class, it's that focus on work and achievement. When I come in to you and I see that you're, you know, you're my psychologist and you have a PhD and you know, you've got all this experience and you've got a high rating, you know, have a high rating uh, on your reviews on um, uh, Google. So all, I'm looking at all of that work and achievement. I'm going, this person probably knows what they're talking about. They've worked hard. And so I'm probably going to have a good experience. If I'm coming to you from poverty, I may not have the same view at that moment. In financial, and political, and social connections, that's kind of the driving force of, of wealth. So also, let's look at uh, time, because we already talked about the present being most important in poverty, future most important, worrying for tomorrow in middle class, and uh, finally in wealth, the traditions and the history. Very closely related to that, just briefly, in poverty, generational, three, two or three generations of long, deep poverty. Do I still believe in choices? Do I believe choices are going to have a positive impact on my life? I used to teach music and on parent-teacher conferences, everybody liked to come to the music, the art, and the gym teacher because we gave pass-fail grades. And there's one boy named David. He was just about flunking everything, and he was always in trouble. And his mom came into me, and she goes, "Miss Smith, he ain't a bad boy. We just got bad luck. And at the time, I thought, oh, my gosh, what an excuse for him not to do his work and to be messing around all the time. And you know what now I think? Now I think she was telling me, do you know what my pie looks like? Do you know how many explosions are on it? Do you know what, where we live? Do you know who we are? And frankly, at that point, before Ruby Payne, I did not know that. In um, Noblesse Oblige, we already mentioned that in wealth, which means we just got good luck. We did absolutely nothing. This is so difficult for the middle class to understand that in old money, wealth, you didn't actually have to achieve anything to get that. You were born into it. To me, that's just like, we got good luck, right? And finally, um, in the middle class, what's the hidden rule on luck? You make your own luck. My gosh, you do not even get to have good or bad luck. You have to even earn or achieve your luck. Sometimes I think it's really not that much fun being middle class. Everybody else is out there having their connections and relationships and the middle class is working themselves to death and trying to make every choice possible. 
every one of these experiences is respected by the bridges lens. And it's a matter of looking at this and saying, when I'm interacting with someone, I'm not going to stereotype and say, you've got these hidden rules. But I'm saying, you might come from a different experience in a different environment. And this gives me sort of a, a template to start with so that we can have that conversation, we can have that dialogue. And finally, because of time, uh, we talked a little bit about language already, so hopefully you'll forgive me for going through that. Remember, we talked about the casual and the formal register and the circular and story structure. I just wanted to briefly define these resources. resources. Uh, financial services, um, financial resources on the little finger, because you know what? Having the money to buy things and to save for future story is very powerful to save for generations. Um, I think none of you here would say that's happiness, but the more stability it offers you, the more choices and options it offers you, the more quality of life it off, off, offers you. Uh, mental is cognition. Why do we put it on this finger? Well, because um, that's the only finger we had to put it on. But this is an important piece, especially, are you an abstract or a concrete process? Because in order to be successful in the middle class, the more abstract thinking that you can access in your brain, the further you will go. And probably that is true in wealth. Emotional, we put on the middle finger. Where is it? Because it's the finger we get emotional with. This is not the stress of your life, but this is your coping strategies, your decisions, your behaviors. And if you have stress, are you self-destructive? Are you destroying others? Or do you have good coping skills? To help you keep moving forward. That's what's measured here. We use a scale of one to five, five being above average. Spiritual, we put on this finger because it gives us guidance. It helps us lead the way. And if you were with me and you had paper, I would say write culture there as well because your cultural aspect and your spiritual aspect are the part of us that is human. Your physical is on the thumb because if you lost your thumb, you'd have to retool how you do everything. That's your health. That's your physical well-being. Most important thing about bridges ever is understanding that the biggest protective factor is our social capital, our support systems. We have people who are bonding social capital that help us get by. We have maybe people who are bridging social capital who help us get ahead. The middle class calls that networking. In wealth, we call that connection. In poverty, the big poverty think tanks are saying, this is what's really missing poverty. It's not a lack of transportation as much and housing as, as much as it is. It's that person who knows you and can recommend you for a job, who knows there's a job opening, who promotes you. That bridging social capital is often being paid when we're in poverty. Our caseworkers, our counselors, our teachers, and so forth. And, you know, we, we in, uh, in the Bridges communities believe that every citizen uh, should come or that citizens could, should come shoulder to shoulder with folks in poverty and not just expect somebody who's being paid by an agency to do it. On the very bottom here is the hidden rules. If you know more hidden rules, you can be successful in more environments. So I'm going to stop. I just want to say one more closing thing, because I didn't really give the why of the resource hand here, is to, is to look at everyone's strengths. But I also heard Dr. Michael Marmot say once, 
hopefully you are attracted to bridges, but if you use another model, you need a model that has a good analysis of people's environments, as well as a good analysis of the strengths of individuals. So this is the model of the strengths of individuals. And they have that we interact with our environments. And so you need both. So that's all. Colleen asked, what do you see as most important for school systems reaching their students of poverty and how do we start? Well, I think that just like nothing happens without relationships, right? And so if you look at the continuum in the beginning where we had, well, you've got one out the one-on-one -on -one with students who are coming from a different environment. You've got the one-on-one -on -one with parents and hopefully you can reach out to parents uh, when I was a teacher, everyone said, you know, oh, we never get to see the parents who are, you know, that really need to be here. Um, but part of that was how we structured our organization. When we had parent-teacher conferences, we gave appointments. Um, so partly, um, you know, this was one of Ruby's early ideas is to have an open sort of museum-style uh, parent-teacher conference. You can have some that some folks who want to come in and have an appointment and others that just come in within a certain hour. And, you know, most of the time, even in health clinics, this will work because people have transportation, other issues, there are things going on in their personal life. If you give me a time, I might not be able to be there. The number one thing for every sector is for the individuals who work and design the organization, who work within that organization, identify the own, their own lens of, of economic class and uh, how they interact with somebody who may be coming from a different perspective and understanding that. So number one is to have a framework for understanding poverty or the bridges out of poverty training for staff and continue that and have that dialogue. And there are many resources that I'll have processed if your school district or your any organization who begins to uh, look at this and say, oh my gosh, you know, we've been we've been um, kind of missing the mark or we've been misunderstanding uh, students' intentions sometimes so it was really part of you know, the environment that they come from or the hidden rules that they're using. I think that we need to avoid power struggles. And in order to do that, we have to identify how uh, the, the system looks to somebody who comes from a different perspective. So the bridges or the framework for understanding uh, poverty training and having a critical mass of understanding of that, which 42% of more of your teachers and your administrators on board with that, that's where you begin, is to look at what is the understanding of that, of those environments and the hidden roles that the students and parents may be, may be using. And can we be respectful of those? And where do we go from there? That's great. I hope that answers your question. Um, so I've got a question from Trisha that, that maybe we can try to answer, although it, it's a pretty tough one. Um, Trisha asked, what's the first step to begin in the design of services for persons looking for employment? And so, so I guess for an unemployment-based um, agency, what, what you would suggest is the first step um, when it comes to bridges? Well, uh, first of all, the agencies, the staff, and uh, again, Anyone who is working within that organization and designing those uh, services needs to understand bridges or to understand the bridges lens of um, the different environments and understand that people are coming from an environment where work was just something you did. And if you got, you know, if you found out there was a job 
for 10 cents more an hour, you go for that job. Or maybe you've, you've coming off of benefits and you've, or subsidies and you've never had a job. So there's, there's going to be a lot of hidden rules that people uh, need to talk about. So you really can't talk about those hidden rules with folks unless you have that understanding yourself. Secondly, um, I think that you have to involve the employers in this as well. So if you just teach hidden rules to the employee and help the employee and say to the employee, like, don't quit or tell your boss, you're an idiot, I'm out of here until you talk to me, right? Because there might be other ways, other choices that could be made. You also need to say that to the employer. And the employer needs to understand that folks are coming in with a different perspective so that we have ways of avoiding those power struggles that end up and you know, uh, getting fired or being dismissed. And, and then that's really bad for the organization doing workforce development <laughs> because you're not, you don't have good retention rates. And lastly, there is a getting ahead that uh, if you could use now that's called getting ahead in the workplace that would help those individuals who may be transitioning out of poverty really see the hidden roles and understand their own perspective and hidden roles and how to build resources and then uh, part of that is also helping folks partner and having the social capital they need to be successful in different environments than what they're used to. So many times when we're transitioning out of poverty, we're leaving our social capital in poverty and we need people to help us reframe. You know, what do I do instead of saying to my boss, you're an idiot, I'm out of here. You know, what are my options? So. You can teach folks this, but getting ahead and bridges goes to a different level rather than just saying one, two, three, four, five, here's what you need to do on the job. It gives you the why in your own mind and a deeper understanding so that you have, can use those strategies in different contexts, You know, not just with this particular manager, but I can apply that to another manager too because it's part of my understanding, not just something that I'm you know, doing because someone said this is what I need to, to do in order to keep a job. So that was getting ahead in the workplace. Um, so I've got a question. Uh, where do the hidden rules of class come from? Are they collected from studies, self-reported from individuals? Uh, that sort of thing. The, the hidden rules of economic class, you will find them in different areas of research. Uh, but basically, they're pretty unique in a sense to bridges because we attach them to the environment. So it's basically this research that it comes out of, as well as um, the case studies of many, many people who have gone through getting ahead in, in terms of um, the middle uh, the hidden rules of poverty. Uh, the middle class hidden rules uh, are pretty standard. So if you look at any research on economic class norms, you will see that the, the research is there. We just have a different way of looking at it, uh, or a different um, terminology. We call them hidden rules because they really aren't shared much. They're just they just become expectations. So the hidden rules are are I cannot really give you another single resource other than our work for that. Is it David? Do you know that? No, I think it's one of the things that makes some of the bridges and the stuff unique. Um. I've seen some questions in the chat, and maybe Terry, you can speak to this, but something that comes to mind for me, there's a couple of people asking about geographic hidden rules, and I think certainly there's some truth to that. I don't know if you have any, anything you'd like to Very well. Well, Luann has, says, where do you find the geographic hidden rules for an area? Usually we bump into them. You know, you that's mainly when we find out about hidden rules, because 
very, very rarely do people actually teach you the hidden rules or talk to you about them. Um, so, um, you know, I, we were talking about um, uh, incidents with uh, that Ruby brought a green bean casserole to a, a home in Wealth for a bereavement dinner. This was old money and, you know, presentation is the hidden rule in Wealth on um, food. And uh, the woman, the mother, or the, the, the woman of the house uh, took that into the, into the um, kitchen. It was never seen or heard from again. Well, I was presenting in Charleston, South Carolina. This had happened up in Chicago. And someone said to me, you know, well, there's no self-respect in woman, no matter how wealthy in Charleston, that would not have put that green bean casserole on the table because that, my dear, is Southern hospitality. And then some very honest person said, yes, Mamie, but we would have talked about her later. So even the hidden rules of economic class can be different depending on the region of the country or your culture or your gender or your generation. We are just wonderful in that we are so impacted by so many different uh, areas in our life that makes each of us unique. But we can still see these threads and patterns in the environment. So that's the end of our time, folks. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Terry is a national consultant. If you if you liked, as I have hearing from Terry and, and her expertise in this area, she is available to come out to your institution, your location. Um, and, and if that's something you'd like to investigate, uh, drop us a line at the office and, and we'll follow up with you. Um, I had a great time being with all of you. Thanks for your questions.